Daniel Bernard Romain, thank you very much for joining us here at Lawrence.com. Oh, my pleasure. Really glad to be here. Oh, it's our pleasure. Do you prefer Daniel or DBR? Daniel's fine. Well, you, along with the String Quartet, The Mission, and DJ Scientific, will be at the Lead Center in Lawrence on February 2nd, performing your work, a civil rights reader. Your music has been described most frequently in the press as classical hip-hop or some sort of variation on that term. How would you describe your music? Uh, how would I des- I would describe my music as the expression of a young black American. The musical expressions of a young black American. And that's really, if you know what a young black American is, then you would know that it would encompass not only hip-hop music and classical music, but rock, soul, ambient, techno. Um, I'm of the iPod generation, you know. I want to hear everything. I want to say everything. I want to feel everything and do more. And um, I think that it's important as I get older that I, like a lot of people, a lot of people, like a lot of Americans, we declare things. We just don't say things. We declare things. So there you have it. Young, black, American, musical, and expressive. You know? And talk a little bit about what we can expect when we go to see a civil rights reader. Um, expect a balancing act, you know, Balancing tradition with innovation. Balancing history and trying to look forward. A string quartet and a DJ. Electric instruments and a laptop. You know, a dread violin. I mean, that's what I meant by that. I meant that I grew up playing the violin. I believe strongly in the classical music tradition. It's an important part of who I am. At the same time, I believe strongly in the legitimacy of the laptop as a musical instrument, of the, of the iPod as a musical instrument, plugging in my violin, literally, to effects and my laptop. Um, and this has always been the case for a lot of uh, composers. What I mean by composers, I do mean Mahler and Stravinsky, and I also mean Ellington and Bjork, hmm. you know, these are important composers. One of the most important composers to me right now is Trent Reznor, mm. Better, you know, the, the founder of Nine Inch Nails, but uh, an exciting and relevant and, and very influential uh, American composer. And that's the uh, the musical components of a civil rights reader. And each that's of right. each of the pieces are inspired by different members of the American civil rights movement of the '60s: uh, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., Maya Angelou, and Adam Clayton Powell Jr. There's a whole pantheon of civil rights icons. Why did you choose these in particular? Well, maybe they're not. You know, maybe they're the obvious choices. I think. Uh, you know, they're the obvious choices. Uh, it's a little more personal than that. I grew up reading these men and women's writings. Uh, these are holy texts to me. These are spiritual texts to me. I live in Harlem on 119th Street and Lenox Avenue. I live 
in the brownstone of a Miss Barbara Logan, who knew these men and women, mm. who lived, the, the, who lived during these these times of speeches and marches, and um, real, um, how you say, she lived during a time of racial revolution, you know. So, and I think the other reason is that these aren't just uh, use the word inspirations. You know, they're, they're really musical portraits. You know, you're, you're right, I was inspired by these men and women and their lives and what they had done for me, but I think like some sort of, um, like a beautiful gift, right? I wanted to give something back, and the only thing that I could do, the only thing I could think of as a composer, was that instead of string quartet number one, how about string quartet number one, comma, X string quartet? Not string quartet number five, but string quartet number five, comma, Parks. Rosa Parks. Hmm. So for me, as the quartets are played, whenever they're played, whenever they're heard, they're being recorded now, um, I feel as though I am fulfilling the obligations and the musical expressions of, yes, again, a young black American. And I do have an obligation. And were it not for those men and women, and were it not for those writings, there is every chance that I would not be able to write these quartets myself. Of those that you've chose, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and Maya Angelou, they're, they're very well known and uh, embedded in the public consciousness. Adam Clayton Powell Jr. is a little less known. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, and he also has a bit of a checkered past. Basically, Who doesn't? Yeah, yeah Who doesn't? I, know, I know, but I was wondering, and I, I read that your Martin Luther King piece, you were sort of contemplating some of the extramarital affairs he was rumored to have had and yeah. how that shaped yeah. him. And I was wondering if Adam Clayton Powell Jr.'s history, uh, it being checkered as well, was that, was that a concern for you, or is that what maybe attracted you to him as an artist? Well, it was never a concern. Um, and to be honest with you, I shouldn't give you such a hard time, by the way. You're asking a very good question. I need to be honest with you. It's good to be honest these days. We live in times where we need, the world needs more honesty. So, yes, I was attracted. To, now, I wouldn't use the word checkered because I think we all have, uh, well, I'll use, I will use your word. I think we all have a checkered past. Mm-hmm. We all do. Um, who among us does not? The only difference is that we're not all public figures. So that's the only difference. So when you think of it that way, the only difference is that uh, some of us, um, some of our checkered past are a little more well-known than others. Right. Uh, that said, this is a very important part of American politics, actually, specifically adultery. Mm-hmm. You know, Lewinsky is very easy, <laughs> very easy. I just say the word, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. Now, Karen Stanford, not so easy, but you should know. She's the mother of Jesse Jackson's illegitimate son. Right. And that led to him becoming, let's say, a non-entity in American politics. 
a black man speaking at the Democratic National Convention has been marginalized. Why? Because of what you call it, a checkered past. So to me, how does adultery play into the civil rights movement? How did it play into the civil rights movement? We have those transcripts. We know that Dr. King had illicit affairs with many women. They were recorded. Nothing, and, in my, and to me, it's nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, you're right, I was attracted. I was attracted to the women the same way he was, but not for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. Who, who were those women? What influence did they have on the civil rights movement? We will never really know. And Adam Clayton Powell, it is unfortunate. This is what is unfortunate in terms of what you're calling a checkered past in American politics as a whole. We will never really know. And not enough people know. Um, the contributions of not only these women, but in some cases of what these politicians did do. The civil rights legislation that the Johnson administration acquired upon the assassination of Kennedy actually started with the writings of Adam Clayton Powell, Jr. Now, I put X first, and I wrote one for Dr. King second, but if I were true to form, Adam Clayton Powell would come first because it was his initial writings that later became the Civil Rights Act. Mm-hmm. And not enough Americans know that. What we do know, as you said, is that he was a good-looking man, he was a tall man, he loved women, he loved to drink, and he gave Congress hell. <laughs> <laughs> he gave Congress hell. And you know what? There's something about that last part that we need and we're getting a little bit more of that. Yeah, you, so, and, he's a very and, and, and not to give you such a big answer, but how wonderful is it? How wonderful is it that it is now very, if, if you're truly a progressive and enlightened person, and we're having this conversation today, and to quote our president at this hour, then you know it's not just about who these men were sleeping with anymore. It is about the Speaker of the House. Mm-hmm. So there is justice, right? Mm-hmm. Clayton Powell Jr. is a, a fascinating, charismatic figure that's not very well known, and I, I admire yeah. your efforts to make him uh, more well known. Because uh, yeah, right. I mean, if nothing else, it's just a fascinating story. His life, and uh, he is also—I assume you probably have heard—he released a spoken word album. Yes, he did. And, and have you heard? I haven't heard it. Like, uh, what, well, what's it, it like? I've exactly? heard it in its entirety. I, I try to figure out a way to use it in the string quartet, but I, I stopped doing that, and I decided not to because. You know, I, I started realizing that, you know, the minute you do that, maybe that'll come later, but uh, the minute you do that, I think that, um, well, I think that the quartets need to be able to stand on their own as string quartets. Mm-hmm. So I made that decision. But, you know, I did hear, you, you, you know, beautiful, I mean, it seems like to me that the, the man could have been an actor, maybe even had aspirations of being a Hollywood actor. Right. But um, I did hear that, the, uh, the spoken word, and, it's, and it's, you know, it's very interesting. Just a nice sort of uh, nexus of the political and the musical. Um. A civil rights reader coincides with Black History Month. 
Of course. And um, <laughs> as an artist and as a black man, what do you see as your role in the celebration mm. of black history? More as maybe a historian, like bringing to light these figures like Adam Clayton Powell Jr., or maybe as an activist who try to further their causes? That's a really good question. I had not been asked this question before. My role during black history month. Well, I think like a lot of black artists, perhaps like a lot of black people, you know, we always, there's something about, the month of February and that association that, you know, it kind of it puts a bad taste in your mouth, quite frankly. Right. You know, I don't think anybody would want to have, you know, uh, Jewish American month. You know, <laughs> when you say it that way, you suddenly realize it's how kind of, you know, these things often, like a lot of holidays, you know, they're really good intentions. People mm-hmm. have good intentions, but the execution becomes poor and popular. Poor and popular. That said, it, it's a very good question that you're asking me because I think that I do have a role. I do, and I do, and again, it goes back to the choices. I think so many times our roles, our roles are defined by our choices. What we think, who we are as people, are defined by the choices that we make. I really do believe that, and I think that as a composer, these choices become obvious. As artists, I have, I have a feeling you're an artist. I don't know you, but I have a strong feeling you're an artist. As artists, our 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 art becomes defined by the choices that we make. Very simply, I could have chosen to compose string quartets. I chose to compose string quartets that are, in fact, musical portraits of iconic figures from the civil rights era. So that is my, to answer your question, I feel that my responsibility during Black History Month as a black man is to walk the walk, talk the talk, and compose the compositions that clearly define my choices, my values, my morals, and ultimately define who I am. And why is the civil rights movement Mm. still important in 2007? Mm. You know, maybe it's not. Isn't it passe? I mean, come (laughs) on. It's not about Arthur Ashe. It's about Tiger Woods, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> if you're hip to it, you know exactly what I mean by that. You know, it's not about the Black Panthers. It's about Kanye West, mm-hmm. you know. And maybe that's it. Maybe it's about Oprah. It's not about Oprah. It's about Oprah. You know, what I'm getting at is that it's, it, it's almost passe, almost kitsch. Almost kitsch, and it should be, 40 years. We're 40 years plus, mm-hmm. actually. But yet, yet... You know, I wrote a song a few years ago called Segregation Song, and suddenly, with Trent Lott, it became very relevant. <laughs> you know, you see these images of Katrina, and suddenly it's like 1964 all over again, and I wasn't even born in 1964. Right. You know? So there's something that I think is um, cyclical about the specific relationship between black Americans and Americans. There is a specific relationship. And you know what? It shouldn't be surprising, surprising given the history of our nation, given the history of our nation. And I need not, you know, go past, go past it. I need not go past that sentence. But um, I think that 1968 will be relevant in 2008. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And speaking of the 
cyclical nature and history repeating itself, do you think that our civil rights are currently under attack? No. I don't. No. I don't. I don't, and I'll tell you why. Um, under attack, no. I think, I think that, um, you know, the armies are there. You know, it, it's the weapon of choice. You have to choose your weapon. Now, I choose the violin. I choose the violin, and I choose, well, for poetic terms, I choose the, the pen. I actually compose on a laptop. Well, I'll be even more poetic. I choose the mouth. Yeah. <laughs> so it, but it's, it's about the weapon of choice. So, you know, um, I don't feel that civil rights legislation. I mean, if, if you are, and again, not to contradict myself, although these things echo and resonate, you have to decide, you have to make the choice, how will you respond? Now, if you're not sophisticated or progressive enough person to respond in a truly progressive and sophisticated way, then I think you're missing the point. In other words, if you really see things as black and white, that to me, you're thinking like it's 1967. But if you understand politics, if you understand gender roles, if you understand the relationship of homosexuality to heterosexuality and politics, man, there's, it's a very, very thick and sophisticated postmodern conversation and dialogue that we're having. And if you don't understand it, you're not going to be able to participate. So, no, I do not think that you know, civil rights are under attack. However, I do think that we are unfortunately being led by individuals who are willing or courageous or maybe even not able to have that progressive, tolerant, postmodern, sophisticated, enlightened conversation enlightened conversation that's the difference the mouse is truly mightier than the sword yeah i'm really you know you just caught me in a mood and i'm sorry i, I haven't slept in a few days that's, and right. that's probably part of it so I, I i know i sound like i'm on a podium but i almost feel like i'm giving a speech i don't mean to no no it's great i apologize, it was I apologize to you you just caught me in a mood no know? no uh, we'll we'll keep going on that mood And this is another sort of grandiose question and uh, yeah. hard, to, hard to fit into a soundbite, but have we as a country made enough or any progress in the civil rights arena since the days of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr.? Oh, there is no doubt about that. There's no, we have a billionaire Af- African-American woman. Who would have thought? Yeah. We have, we have this, we ha- look, we not only have black wealth, we have black philanthropy. <laughs> we have... I mean, people don't seem to realize this. We have truly seen the beginnings of generations of wealth. Ah, generations of wealth. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to be rich. Rich is pretty easy. Rich is, my parents are from Haiti. You are rich compared to someone living in, most people living in Haiti. You have to understand this about yourself. You have to understand this about the world. You are rich. Okay? So another thing to be wealthy is another thing to enable your family to have generations of wealth. And we are seeing this now generations of wealth. That said, 
I think that what I would like to see, you know, if, if you make millions of dollars because of the facets of black culture, okay, the facets of black culture are responsible for generating your wealth, then I do think you owe you owe a return on that check. You owe a return on that check. I live in a ghetto. There are far too many poor black people in this country. And, I, and again, I'm only talking about what I know. There's probably many other types of people who are poor as well. We haven't even talked about uh, Latino Americans. Mm -hmm. Latin, uh, uh, we haven't talked about Latino Americans. But that said, there are far too many black people in this country, given the amount of black wealth and black philanthropy. I think it's a real problem, absolutely. Um, so it's being addressed. It's being addressed slowly but surely, but actually not fast enough. The relevancy here. Well, again, for me, I have a young composers program that I do through the Orchestra of St. Luke's. Mm -hmm. I have my own production company that employs six people. I have an ensemble that employs eight. And um, in my own way, I'm trying to give jobs and create um, create opportunities, create opportunities for young men and women of any race, ethnicity, by the way, mm -hmm. multicultural company and band, to make money, to make a living at their vocation. So now I'm doing this as, as a young black man. And my models are uh, not only Jay Rockefeller and Lee Iacocca and Jack Welch, but they're also Damon Dash and Sean Combs and Jay-Z, quite frankly. Speaking of the the advancement of black wealth yeah. and the, the sort of development of that class. Do you see Barack Obama emerging as a viable candidate for president and an outgrowth of this sort of firmament of black wealth in this country? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Well, you know, let me, let me give it even a more um, uh, progressive answer. You know, one of the tenets of wealth, I think, is an appreciation for the arts. I do believe that. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a little naive, but I do believe that. Uh, you know, if you go to Lincoln Center, I would dare say that the gross medium incomes of most people at Lincoln Center um, <laughs> approach six figures. Yeah. Okay, so, so that's, maybe that's, that, maybe that's the wrong um, relationship to make, but you get my point. Yeah, yeah. So now let me answer the question that way. Because see, now this is very interesting. You can see where I'm going with this. I think that, uh, well, he is a legitimate candidate. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. He is. I don't know if he's emerging. You said emerging, but I think he is a legitimate candidate. Mm -hmm. uh, he's certainly doing all the things that a legitimate candidate would. Whether or not he remains a legitimate candidate, we will see. Right. <laughs> but um, I think that, you know, whenever, for every Barack Obama or, uh, I believe, Bill Richardson mm -hmm. or Hillary Clinton, lest we forget, for every one of those, for every person who defies within their, within their category, within their um, vocation, within their occupation, if they begin to be, you know, the first are very interesting to me. First former lady to become a senator. You know, um, these things are very, very important. And whenever these things happen, whenever you have the first, whenever you witness it, I think that it translates into the arts. I think it makes my job much easier. You know, I am not the first, nor am I the only hip-hop violinist. 
I am not the first, nor am I the only composer combining popular music with classical music. That's part of classical music traditions, by the way. And most importantly to me right now, I am not the first composer to make a very good living writing music. Not producing music, not in popular music, but writing music. Hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of bending the question a little bit, bending my answer a little bit <laughs> to the question. But I think that, for me, that's what Barack Obama, Obama represents. More than an exciting, young, dynamic, political uh, icon, who I think will become an iconic figure. I do think, I do believe that. To me, he represents, ah, opportunity. Hmm. Ah, he represents defiance. He represents defiance. And, you know, any dream, I think, begins with defiance. Yeah. Any dream begins with defiance. Hmm. Somebody said that, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever did, it sounds good. While we're on the topic of presidential politics, and you do live in Harlem, uh, yeah. ever run into Bill Clinton? I've run into Bill Clinton a few times. Um, very exciting. But you know what? Uh, to bring it back home to you, more exciting to me, I've only met him once, I ran into Charles Rangel. Oh, yeah. Who you know, replaced Rangel Adam Clayton Peter. Jr.? Yeah, well, Adam yeah, Clayton Powell, excuse he, me. Yeah, yeah he's, that's right. That's exactly right. And, and, you know, again, a lot of people don't know their history. I don't know my history. I don't mean to talk so arrogantly. But I know that part of my history. And that was very exciting to me, actually, because it was, it was kind of, um, what's the word? Um, there was a certain serendipity about it, actually, because I had just finished writing the third string quartet. And I had literally had just, it had just become clear to me who, who Rangel represented. He, it was a ferocious, uh, it was a ferocious uh, political debate. It was a very tough struggle between those two men, and Rangel won. Mm-hmm. He defeated the old man with the checkered pass, as you, as you, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And meeting him, you know, I felt... I felt honored because I felt that I was walking with ghosts. You know, I felt that I was a part of evolution. You know, and if we're really going to evolve, and I don't mean in purely physical or natural or biological terms, but if we're truly going to evolve as a society, these are Lincoln terms perhaps, then I think the Clintons and the Obamas and the Rangels, and the Powells, and the uh, Mohammeds, and the Kings. That's how you evolve. Knowing one's, how one's history is forever linked to one's future. And it was in that handshake, you know, in that passing hello, you know, on 125th Street in Harlem. It was a momentary um, you know, it was just a moment. I don't want to make it sound like it was bigger than it was. <laughs> he doesn't know who I he still he did he has no idea who I am. <laughs> but I knew who he was. Right. And I knew what he had done for me. And I knew what even being on hundred and twenty fifth street in Harlem meant for him at that time. And um, to me, well, you know, it's funny, I I know what what I first said to you. It was in that moment that I did not feel like a young black American. I felt like an American.
onto a slightly more frothy line of questions. Yeah. <laughs> frothy. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> com. we have a series of questions we like to ask notables, such as yourself, about your hobbies and interests. And so first question, what are you reading right now? <laughs> this will tell you a lot about me. Uh, State of Denial by Bob Woodward. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and what attracted to you to the book, and uh, how do you like the book so far? Um, cliche, but knowledge is power. Um, history is power. Um, and I... In my life right now, I want to find, I want to decide for myself what is evil. I want to decide for myself what does it mean to be a good person. And I want to decide for myself what is, what is truly the next ideological struggle for this century. In reading that particular book, which is very, very good, I'm answering these questions. And I'm not Republican or Democrat. It's not that simple for me. So um, the book, well, as I said, the, the book is helping me to make informed choices, informed choices. Yeah. What book would you recommend that everyone read? That's a great, wow, no one's ever asked me that question. Well, let me give you two. They're both women. Mm-hmm. One is Haitian, Edgewood Dottecott. Um, I believe it's her first book, Crick Crack, a series of... Um, wonderful, uh, uh, how you say, these, these wonderful uh, short stories from Haiti, drawn from Haitian folklore, mm. mythology. It's Haitian mythology. Yeah. Okay. Crack. The other one, and, and she is the author, by the way, of, I think her next book was The Farming of Bones. I think, don't print that. The second book is Alice Siebold, The Lovely Bones. Ah. Very important book. Devastating first two pages. Devastating. A child is Kidnapped, about 12 years old, raped, murdered, buried. And the third page begins with, from her perspective, watching her family deal with that event from heaven. Um, Not ruining it for your readers, but why I recommend that book? Perspective. Mm -hmm. Perspective. The book forces you to think about this particular situation very, very different perspective. And again, as an artist, I'm, I'm really interested in that. I'm really interested in, maybe, by the way, this probably leads to the, the, the Woodward uh, book, by the way, for the very same reasons. I'm really interested in perspective. I'm very much tired of my comfortable, middle-class, privileged, bourgeoisie perspective. <laughs> tired of it. Right. And um, I love traveling. I love, uh, I love reading for, those, for these very... Uh, reasons. I, I have to really force myself to, you know, look at something from this angle, look at something from this angle, and then decide. So, yeah, so Alice Siebold, The Lovely Bones, Edgewood, Dante Kant, uh, Crick Crack. Great. Two great, great books. I highly recommend them. Great. All right, and moving on with our line of questioning, what are three shows that you're watching on TV right now? I won't lie. I'll be very, very honest about this. One of the shows that I thought was absolutely brilliant was... Uh, uh, P. Diddy making the band. All right, right. Really great, really great. Especially the very, very first season. You talked about history. You talked about Biggie. You talked about just how much hard work it takes to get up on that stage. And he's absolutely right. Sure. 
but that's not really on television anymore. So that's fine. okay, let me let me uh, let me really. Think. Oh, okay. I love the Discovery Channel, right. and particularly the Crocodile Hunter. Um, I Steve Irwin, all of it. Huge <laughs> fan. Just devastating watching it these last few days in particular. Oh, you ever watch uh, uh, MythBusters on there? MythBusters, love it. <clears throat> I love it all. Yeah, yeah MythBusters, Myth yeah. the uh, Orange County. Uh, guitar, uh, motorcycle right, uh, family. Uh, yeah, right, right. I know the titles, can't remember. Uh, uh, you know, yeah. American <laughs> Chopper, American great. Chopper, American yeah. Chopper. Yeah, but uh, I should give you, yeah, I should give you a specific show. Okay, let me give you, okay. Um, so, well, okay. Man, I feel like I'm just telling you too much. No, go ahead. Uh, Heidi, Heidi Klum's. <laughs> oh, Project um, Runway. Yes, Project Runway. It's an awesome <laughs> show. Loved it, <laughs> loved it. Uh, the Top Chef. Right, great. Loved it. Bravo. Uh, I have to admit it. I, I'm watching I Love New York on VH1. Yeah, okay. And again, the reason why it, it, it's, 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 you know, it's like you're watching a psychological uh, car accident, car wreck, <laughs> train wreck or something. You know, you just you kind of just can't believe. I don't know about you, but when I watch shows like that, um, again, maybe this is arrogant, I sometimes can't believe that there are people like this among us. <laughs> <You> <laughs> that's know, why that's, everyone that's watches it. That's how I'm watching it. You know, like a Jerry Springer, type right. of, that kind of, you know, that's the perspective, you know. Um, maybe on a more serious note, though, ER, uh -huh. more than Grey's Anatomy, personally. Right. Um, the Cooler, more than CSI, mm -hmm. personally. Um, always, 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 um, L, uh, oh, Oh, gosh. LA, not LA Law. Law and Order. Law and Order. Law and Order. Law and Order. Yep. Always. Always, always, always. And quite honestly, I've been watching it since I was uh, seven years old. <laughs> it's minutes. a constant in everyone's minutes. lives. No, 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 60 minutes. Oh, 60 yes, minutes. yes. Um, I think it's, it, it's vital, vital television. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not an Andy Rooney fan. I think he really needs to be let go. That's between me and you. Oh, but, uh, he's got yeah. such lovable eyebrows, though. No, no. <laughs> oh, man. He's just <laughs> such an old man in the worst sense of the term. But, uh, 60 minutes, yeah. I think that's vital television. Right. I really right. do. Yeah. Never lets me down. Never lets me down. And, you know, I mean, hey, I mean, my God. Uh, Mike Wallace, I think, is, is the most important uh, reporter of all time. And he's close to 100 oh. years old and still he working. Looked, you know, he's looked great. He seems to be in good physical shape. He, he looks 50, even <laughs> close up. I mean, he just looks really good. Got his wits about him. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, the guy has interviewed Salvador Dali, for crying out loud, <laughs> man. Come on. I mean, you know. I mean, so from Salvador Dali to the Ayatollah just, Khomeini, he's done everybody. I, you know, I mean, it's to me, this this man needs to be, you know, I don't know. He needs a full uh, 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 security detail. <laughs> you know, he really does. He needs to just be under lock and key and, and watched at all times because he's just too precious. And where are the books, by the way? That's my only thing about him. Where are the books? He's Come too on. busy doing journalism. He has no time. Well, I want to see those notes. They're somewhere. <laughs> I believe it. I, he's a savvy enough guy. Maybe They're posthumously. Somewhere. I hate to say it, but maybe posthumously. Yeah, I think, I think you're right about that. Yeah. Uh, son, I don't know. Yeah, that guy's a <laughs> Chris Wallace is a douche. Chris, yeah, yeah, probably a big disappointment, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chris Wallace, he's trashed his old man in the public, and it's just terrible. Yeah, it's really, he's, he's just, really kind of like, He's wow. betrayed his lineage. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, but moving on. Uh, uh, five albums, 
that you're currently listening to? Or, uh, or, or that we would find in your iPod? Yeah. Uh, the, erase, the Eraser, Tom York. Mm-hmm. Um, let me try to go right down the list. Um, I, I think it's just called 12 Songs. It's Neil Diamond's, uh, one of Neil Diamond's, I think it's his latest record, produced by Rick Rubin. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's called 12 Songs or songs, something like that. Uh, well, just Justin Timberlake, Sexy Back. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just love it, man. Timberland, totally <laughs> down with all that. Um, it's actually my friend, uh, DJ Spooky. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, Drums of Death, because I just, to listen to it it's good right um fifth album well honestly because i really think that it was the record of the year for me personally so i've gone back and started listening to it again bjork vespertine that's the all vocal album that she did isn't uh it? no that was medulla oh excuse me the okay. album right before uh, okay all right. yeah so this was a few years ago um but yeah just unbelievable unbelievable orchestra uh she worked with Matt Mose, a lot of music concrete, a lot of ambient sounds, people walking in the snow, cars, bicycles, you know. Oh, but i, I got to mention that, too. Um, Matt Mose, um, something about the roses, these ro- roses have teeth, or something like that. Matt Mose's latest. Oh, okay. Great, great, great record. Right. Great record. Great. Well, I think yeah. that's five, and I think you've met all the requirements there. Thank you, man. Uh, wow. It's just like some show on VH1 sometimes. <laughs> well, hey, uh, Daniel, thank you very much for joining us here at Lawrence.com, and we look very much forward to your performance at the Leeds Center. And My pleasure. Good luck. Thank you.